This is Someone Like Me, in Slavery Tennessee's podcast working to educate listeners about human trafficking and empower survivors of the crime by telling their stories. I'm Leslie, your host. When we say we want to empower survivors of trafficking, this means that we provide an opportunity for survivors to share their stories in a safe environment with a trauma-informed approach. We go into great detail about this on our first episode of this season, which covers trauma-informed care. In that episode, we talked about how the survivor voice is woven into the fabric of this show, even if it's not a literal interview with someone who has experienced trafficking themselves. Today's episode, though, is our first survivor interview of the season. You get to meet Trish, whose story is just as unique as the other women we've had on the show, and whose story of hope is profound and powerful. Trisha's story is a great example of how direct service organizations work together in Middle Tennessee. As she spent time in the Thistle Farms program, formerly called Magdalene, but had connections to in slavery Tennessee on her healing journey. Some themes you'll hear in this story are familial drug use, late in life trafficking, the loss of guardianship of children and regaining that guardianship, and what it looks like to heal and thrive after trauma. As always, please be aware that the content we discuss on this show can be difficult to hear for some and triggering, so please use your discretion while listening. Trish, would you rather experience life in slow motion or in fast forward? Slow motion. How come? Because you get to really experience it. I live a very fast-paced life, and so to slow down, smell the roses, and truly experience the depth Mm. of what's going on is important to me. I love that. That's a great answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, one more. Would you rather only have the same thing to drink for the rest of your life or the same thing to eat for the rest of your life? I would rather have only the same thing to drink and it be water. <laughs> well, that's a really good answer. Yeah. Same I thing. like my food now. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> oh, take the food. Uh-huh. Same thing. I'd rather eat my calories than drink that. <laughs> okay. That's it for our Would You Rathers. Thank you, Marissa. That's great. So, Trish, we're so excited to have you. Whenever we get to talk to survivors and hear real stories of what's actually happening in trafficking. It's always a delight. So I appreciate you coming on the show. One thing we've had a lot of conversation about this season is about youth vulnerability. And so what I'd love to hear from you first is what did your life look like growing up before trafficking became a part of your story? So my parents weren't a good fit for each other. There was a lot of verbal abuse that went on between the two of them and additionally physical violence between the two. And so often uh, as an only child, I was playing by myself or I would go outside to avoid being involved in what was going on in the house. I was also uh, being molested for the first seven years of my life, thousands of times by a family friend. And so there was this big secret that was always kept because I was threatened, you know, if you tell, I'll whoop you. Hmm. And there was this shame that was going on because physically my body enjoyed it. I didn't learn until years later that, you know, your body will respond to heat on the stove, whether you're two years old or 82 years old. Hmm. 
and so do other body parts. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that helped me with some of my shame. That's good. You know, I got involved in the drug scene at age 12, smoked my first joint, uh, wanted to try it, you know, curious, Mm -hmm. and that escalated pretty quickly into other drugs. Was that at school that you first started to... Get it into was that? with my mother that mm. I first smoked weed. She would rather that I try it at home where I was safe than uh, anywhere else. Mm. And my drug addiction seemed to help with all the emotional stuff because back then we didn't have counseling and we didn't have a safe environment for the physical when my abuse came out of the molestation And so it was very traumatic. Um, It was more like an investigation at that time, you know. So I really just kind of used different drugs to mask that for many years Mm -hmm. and kept escalating with the amount of drugs and the number of drugs until I later in life I ended up crack cocaine being my favorite. Hmm. Later in life, which, what age? So when I was 18, I moved to South Florida and started doing powder Okay. And it's very strong down there being on the coastal line. And so I, I quickly got involved in that down there. And when I was 30, I returned to Nashville where my family is thinking a geographical change would make things all better. <laughs> and I was here a day and a half and I had already found it. So mm-hmm. geographical doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did trafficking become a part of your story? Trafficking did not become a part of my story until, let's say, 2012. Prostitution was a part of my story, Mm. and there's a big difference Mm -hmm. in choosing, or I wouldn't say choosing, because when you're drug addicted, you're a slave. Sure. But practicing prostitution versus having someone have ownership through threat and violence and fear and holding your drugs and taking from you, threatening to kill your family. Mm. That's very different than the imagined choice I had to prostitute Mm. for my drugs. Yeah. Yeah, I think that distinction is a really interesting one because in both instances, the choices aren't that great no matter what, you know, it's not like it's prostitution's a great choice for me. You know, it's, there aren't a lot of freedoms in either of those. Right. Right. I've never heard a survivor say, wow, that's really what I wanted to do. I liked that option. It was always out of, there were no other options at that point. Right. Yeah. So when trafficking happened for you in 2012, what did that look like? How did it become a part of what you were doing? So I had relapsed, and so drugs was introduced back into my system, and I met this guy who was a drug dealer, and uh, I didn't know the verbiage then, which is grooming, and so he was more like a relational, a relationship trafficker at first, where he loved me, and he played the game with my kid, and, you know, threw the football, and we'd eat together, and all these future dreams he was selling me. uh, Really building a family environment, it sounds like. Yes, he was preying on the idea of love that I had, so desperately wanting to be loved. 
So it worked. I, I became emotionally attached to this person, thinking they were the one. And quickly that transformed, that relationship transformed where he started hitting me and, you know, being very jealous and ownership behaviors and you'll do what I say or else things. Um, it just transformed What I've been learning from survivors is that the grooming process, it's like the first step is to win you over, to manipulate you, to get you comfortable with them. And then there seems to be this change of face where you've gotten so dependent upon them that now what they're doing is really solidifying that by beginning to be threatening and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're dependent on them for everything you're getting, so... Again, yes. what for are my your choices? Drugs, for yeah. my security, for everything. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your son. When did he become a part of the picture? So prior to my relapse, I was clean for 10 years. During that time, I ended up being a foster parent and adopting three children. And my son was the only child that was still a minor and in my custody. And so when I relapsed, he lived with me at that time. Yeah. Foster parenting is a really interesting subject that I would love if we could spend just a little bit talking about. Absolutely. Why did you want to become a foster parent? What kind of invited you into that life? So I was clean and participating in 12-step program, and one of my sponsees had gotten pregnant, and I ended up being the the godparent, and actually she ended up going to jail shortly after the baby was born, and the daddy was in active addiction as well, and she asked me, could I help her with keeping the baby for a short period of time till she could get out? And that ended up being for a year, and then the baby went back and, and later on was returned to me again, and... Uh, that time I needed to become a foster parent so that he could be with me. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, the first time she gave custody to me and the second time I got him, I had to become a foster parent. So I didn't set out to be Your hand a was a little bit forced, parent, yeah. But I loved mm-hmm. this baby. I was willing to do anything they said mm-hmm. to get him. And then you went on to how many children have you fostered? So I ended up fostering like 10 children and actually adopted three, my son being one of them, and then two other girls as well. Okay, okay. I love hearing this story because I think it's just important that we hear about the role that, you know, anyone can play a role in being a foster parent. And I think people might be surprised to hear that there might be a trafficking survivor who becomes a foster parent and goes on to really change some lives. How many did you end up adopting then? I adopted three children. Three children. And would have been a fourth, uh, but DCS didn't want to remove her parents' parental rights because she was so close to 18 and there's a cost involved in that. That makes sense. You mentioned, we were kind of talking about before the show, what it looks like when a new child is presented to you as a foster parent. And you specifically said that you wanted the ones that were the most difficult. Who is that usually? It's the female teens that they ask you when you become a foster parent, what kind of children you want. Do you want babies, older children, black, white children? And I said, which ones are hardest to place? Mm -hmm. And immediately the answer was the female teens. 
And Marissa, you're nodding. You're you're <laughs> in agreement with just that general idea. Yeah, and every state I've worked in four states, and every state it's always the teen girls. They're always the hardest to place, and I think people are a little bit afraid of them. They get a bad rap, but they've been through a lot, as you know, by the time that they end up in foster care, but they need the most love. Absolutely. They're really like, they're still children. They just put up a wall, this facade of like anger, and they self-sabotage, and they want to reject you because they want to see that you're really going to stick around. Huh. Is there a story in particular that you saw walls crumble with one of your foster children? Yeah. One of my daughters came to me. She had been in 38 different foster homes, and she had become a master at sabotaging her placement with people. And anytime she or the person would start to get close emotionally, she would start with her behaviors hence 38 different homes. And uh, when she began that with me, I just kind of said to her, look, I don't throw kids away, so you're going to be punished. You're going to receive discipline, but we're going to ride it out. Hmm. And nobody had ever said that to her before. And the walls really changed that she had up. Hmm. She was so grateful that somebody was willing to love her and accept that you know, she's got some baggage that's mm. coming with her. But underneath that that big wall was a beautiful, beautiful young girl mm. that just wanted to be loved. And your experience, and Marissa, I'd love to hear this too, what is that defense mechanism that these kids are putting up? I'm sure it's not just straightforward. I'm sure it's very complicated. But what are the things that you think are at play there that make a sort of lashing out or make them difficult to stay in homes? Gosh. I mean, I'm sure we can both answer this question. And I think it may be a little different for each youth, their reasons. But from my experience working with youth, I feel like there's a lot of testing because there's been so much rejection. They're like, I'd rather just push you away before you reject me, like all the other people have rejected Mm. me. So, you know, oftentimes there will be a little honeymoon period in the beginning with the foster family, and then as they start getting a little bit closer to the parents, then all of a sudden they put the brakes on and start lashing out and like, let's see if I have a breakdown or if I cut myself or if I scream at you, are you going to toss me out just like the last family? So when I am working with clients and their families and they hit that point, I just keep encouraging them, like, just be consistent. Just keep loving them. I know it's hard, but, like, you can get past it. They can get past it. It just will take time. And I've even had youth that I work with, when we start to get close, they're like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm done. I'm trying to terminate our relationship. They don't want it anymore. And I will respect that, but I will also continue to check in and let Mm -hmm. them know that I'm here for you when you need me. And um, they always come back around. (laughs) I think being that consistent support, just being consistent. I tell people that is the number one common denominator in a child's success and moving on to have a healthy life is like they need at least one consistent, healthy person in their life that is always there. Absolutely. That emotional vulnerability is, you know, and now you can hurt me and I don't want to be hurt anymore. Oh, wow. You know, if I let you into my heart, if I share with you my intimacy, intimacy, Mm -hmm. then you can hurt me. 
uh, and I don't want to be hurt anymore. You know, I'm already separated from my family. And children love their biological parents. I don't care what's happened. They do. And so, you know, you never speak bad about their family, no matter what their family's done. You mm-hmm. know, it's just for the child, they just don't want to hurt anymore. They don't want to give anybody that chance. Mm. And But if you can get past that with them, you know, and sometimes you got to step back some, like she said, but with open arms. Yeah. So going back to your story specifically, you relapse and you actually had your children taken away from you. How was it that you lost them? What did that look like? Uh, Well, I was in active addiction and I lost my place to live and became homeless and the police were called out. And when they realized that I didn't have a stable environment for my son, they took him that night and they realized I was on drugs. Mm, Okay. And so um, my son went into custody that night and it wasn't long until I had actually gotten arrested and went to jail. So it was an option during that time for me to even work towards reunification. But it ended up being a four-year process to get my son back. Um, You know, once I got out of jail, because I had gotten clean for short periods of time while I was trying to get clean again, Mm -hmm. the judge looked at it like, look, you've already had several relapses. You're just you're never going to get your kids back. What did you say to that? Uh, well, I said, no offense, Your Honor, but I'm going to get in position, and I'm going to stay in position until God says it's time for my baby to come home. Oof. And that's what I did. I got back into a recovery community at Thistle Farms. Yeah, well, let's go there. So tell us about your history with Thistle Farms and then in Slavery, Tennessee. These are two organizations in Middle Tennessee that often partner together with survivor care. So I'd love to hear your story with both Thistle and ESTN. Okay, so at Thistle Farms, initially it was a program called Magdalene that was a residential home. And Back in, way back (laughs) in 2000, (laughs) um, I had gotten a a small paraphernalia charge, but I was really tired of being on the streets, and I went to the the DA, not the public defender, (laughs) at the court and said, you know, I need help, and if you don't put me in jail, I'm going to die. Wow. And she said, well, first of all, paraphernalia doesn't put people in jail. (laughs) And second of all, there's this program that's open that houses women, and I think you'd be a good fit. So someone from the court system actually referred Referred you. That's Mm -hmm. cool. And so they offer a two-year residential cost-free housing model and provide services to women for the entire two years of, you know, therapy, mental health assessments, medications, housing, cost-free And so, you know, at the end of that two years, that's how I initially put together a long time of of recovery was going through that program. Okay. Um, And this is something that Becca Stevens started initially, right? Yes. This is, and I've heard people say that Becca was doing this sort of work before most anybody else was. Yes. Um, And it was first through Magdalene House then? Yes. Okay. Did you have your son at this point or was he no, out of your custody? Okay. No, that was five years clean. I mm. I got my own life together first. You know, the 
the airline, you know, drops the mask and they tell mm-hmm. you put the mask on you first yeah. and then take care of your child or you'll both be passed out. Mm-hmm. And so really, uh, I'm thankful that my life worked out in a way that I was able to get myself together first. And then I was introduced to the children. So how did the reunification look? Well, at first, uh, it looked very doomed in despair, (laughs) you know, with him saying, you know, you'll probably never get your kids back. The court was really not impressed. Um, I had gotten out of jail from trafficking history and relapse history and had these big old charges of aggravated robbery hanging over my head. And so the court was not real impressed with the fact that I was back at Thistle Farms, which was me going kind of back home. Mm. They weren't impressed that I was in therapy or taking my medication or passing my random drug screens. None Mm. of that was really uh, meant anything. You know, they were still, they were very determined that, you know, this was not going to be a reunification. Mm. And and it was very um, sad for me to hear that. And had I been getting clean for the reason of my child, I probably wouldn't have stayed at that point, you know. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> if I'm not going to get my kid back anyway, why try? Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I was doing it for for me. Hmm. So is in slavery, I've heard they were the ones that helped you get your son back. What did that look like? So when I was released from jail, it took a couple of months before I could get back into the residential program at Thistle Farms now. And so my good friend at that time worked at In Slavery. And so they were actually to provide me with some case management. Okay. They were able to set me up through the Sexual Assault Center for therapy, which was still very much needed. And mm. of course, I was doing my medication management. And they also uh, came to court with me. In Slavery did? Yes. Huh. They came to court with me just as support, but also as someone there to speak on my behalf that I wasn't just saying I was doing good things. I really was. Mm -hmm. And that meant a lot. Walking into a courtroom and and thinking you're never going to get your kid back and having everybody in that courtroom against you, but having one person there with you on your team. Mm. They were Team Trish, you know. <laughs> they believed in me, mm-hmm. uh, and that was that was very much needed. And so you eventually get your son back. I eventually did through a long process of still proving I was clean and still showing that I was in therapy and attending parenting classes. And when I was done living in Thistle Farms, because I stayed there for a year when I got out of jail, then I moved into. Renewal House, which is another program here in Nashville. another partnership program. Uh Uh-huh. And that's a program for women and their children, but it's still Mm. recovery apartments, you know. It's important to me to stay kind of in a residential place that the people around me at least were clean, Mm -hmm. you know. I needed that. Mm, That support. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I was there, I was able to get my son back. We started off with like an hour supervised visit. How long had it been since you'd seen him? It had been three years, my oh, first visit wow. with him. No communication at all. Mm. I longed to hear his sweet voice. Yeah. 
Was he in foster homes during that time? Yeah, he had gone into DCS custody. He had stayed with my ex-relationship. He had gotten custody of him for a while, and then he went into DCS custody. And then my sister kept him for a while as well. Okay. But I could not wait just to hear his voice and see his face and hug his neck. I mean, that was just one of the most beautiful moments that I recall out of my entire life. Mm -hmm. When you lose something, you realize what that something, what that person really means to you. Mm -hmm. Only I didn't lose him to death, you know. And this whole thing started out where I was getting him out of custody. And I was the foster parent. And it ended up where I was the bad parent. The amazing thing to me is so many people, they relinquish their rights or they don't follow through with everything that the court tells them to do. It just seems overwhelming to them. Or they do go back into their addiction, unfortunately, and they they lose their children. But you fought for him. Like, that's amazing. I'm Mm -hmm. just in awe because I'm sure that was a lot. A lot of work. Well, and I love the distinction you made that it had to be because you needed to be well so that if you did get him back, you could take care of him, not just I'll do everything I can to get my son back. Right. I had to come to a place where it was like if I'm unhealthy mentally, spiritually, emotionally, I'm no good to him, you know. And people say, oh, it's the worst thing in the world to go in a foster care. Not necessarily. If I was caught up in sex trafficking and in drug addiction, that was the best thing for my son. Mm. You don't think that at the time. Mm -hmm. That realization comes years later when you really look back and you ask, what was the purpose in me losing him really, God? And you realize, like, I needed to get well. There was something broken terribly inside Mm me. So you've been with Thistle Farms almost since its beginning, right, in some capacity. In and some you capacity. work there now, right? I do. Full time. Tell us about what the last several years have looked like at Thistle Farms. So when I got out of jail, I was able to go back after a couple of months to the residential home. And, you know, I was supposed to be looking for a job. And with aggravated robbery, Hmm. uh, you know, it's not easy to get a job. And that's something that many, many survivors struggle with is the gaps in employment, the lack of job skills. We're up against... We actually have an episode this season talking to the founder of Branded Collective, but about employers and what can employers do if they would like to help survivors and how difficult those, how, how big those barriers are for survivors to get skills and work. And that's why Thistle Farm started too. Mm. Uh, we couldn't get jobs, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, mm-hmm. We have women with 87 arrests on their record and you're going up against college grads. So anyway, I couldn't get a job, you know, and so they said, well, we got an opening at the cafe. We have a cafe at Thistle Farms, beautiful cafe. And I didn't want to do cafe work. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) But I took the job. um, And so anyways, uh, that transitioned into me being an event manager for the cafe. Okay. They worked with me with my skills, and and I grew professionally. Mm -hmm. And then I went into customer service, and now I get to work with our 
education and outreach team. Hmm. And a lot of what we do is we share our model with other organizations and hopes that they would start something very similar somewhere else. And so we've got 53 open programs across the United States, in Canada, Belize. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Yeah, New Zealand. And there's another one, uh, Zimbabwe. Oh, my gosh. And so for me, I get to find beds. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I get to help programs with ideas on their programming for the women. I get to share what's working for us after all these years of experience and falling on our face and getting up and trying it again. Mm -hmm. What I love about that model, too, is I think it would be easy to provide entry-level work for survivors so that they could put on a resume. But what I love about this model is that there was a real investment into you as a human being to say, what opportunities can we create for you that allow you to further yourself, to further your career? So it's not just something you could put on a resume. Your resume could grow while you're here, yes. you know, and you can keep moving up. And I really think that's important. Yes. Because uh, it, it allows for thriving. Yeah, we learn marketable skills that we could take anywhere. Mm-hmm. I choose to stay because I'm old as dirt around there, and <laughs> and it's a big part of what keeps me clean, uh, you know, mm-hmm. still. I mean, I'm around my sisters for life all day long, yeah. uh, you know, and I, I get to be a part of the amazing mission that I believe in because I experienced it. Yeah. So in what way does being a part of that community, and you said your sister's What does that feel like to be involved in a community like that? It's family and it's home. Mm -hmm. And even my own family had to practice tough love with me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so when I got out, I couldn't turn to my family for a place to live or financial assistance. They they were waiting around to see what I was going to do. But my community was right there with open arms. Come on back, girl. We love you. Please. We're happy to have you here. You know, Mm -hmm. we'll love you until you can love yourself again. You know, love heals is one of the themes. Yep. Yep. Boy, that's a really powerful phrase. We'll love you until you can love yourself again. That's a brave thing to say also, isn't it? You know, Marissa, I'm sure that's something that you deal with a lot, you know, loving the youth that you work with, despite them being defensive or, or pushing back. Absolutely. Most of them have absolutely no love for themselves, and they don't even know themselves. Mm. So I think part of what we do in trying to support the youth and even the adult survivors is just empowering them to like get to know who they are, what they like, mm. what they're good at, to help them to see who they truly are, that their past doesn't define who they are, that they like helping others, they want to be a nurse, or they're a great artist, or, you know, they excel in martial arts, whatever mm-hmm. it is. I think it's helping them to discover who they really are and embrace that and love themselves so they can move forward in that mindset. Yeah. Trish, you've talked about one of your children is actually caught up in exploitation now. You talked about how your parents had to have tough love with you. It sounds like there maybe was a boundary that was set. What does that look like to be a parent whose child is now kind of in the same things that you were in? It's very heartbreaking. I work with survivors that come in all the time. I I meet them right where they're at, and I love them. 
wholeheartedly and I encourage them and I believe in them and and it's different when it's your baby. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't quite know how to explain that other than I'm so emotionally attached to it that it's hard for me to even talk with her because of the details that I hear her say and that I've experienced. Her situation triggers my own trauma with trafficking, wow. for one. Yeah. Whereas a, another survivor coming in doesn't trigger my own the same way. I don't. Mm. Don't quite know how to explain that, but mm. it's very different That's when it's your little baby. Because mm-hmm. uh, she's grown, but she's my my baby. Yeah. You know? So having been through it yourself, now watching it happen to your child. What would you say if there might be a parent that's listening who's concerned for their own child? What kinds of words of encouragement would you give to them? Pray. Have resources available if they want it, like in Slavery, Tennessee, or Thistle Mm -hmm. Farms, or Renewal House. Love them where they are, too. Try not to put them down for the behavior they're participating in. Don't call them names like whore or slut because that just adds to the low self-esteem and self-worth that they already have, whether they realize it or not. And take care of yourself through the process because we tend to want to help our children. We all want to help, and uh, sometimes we could end up causing more harm by giving money, and then the money they use, they OD and die, or, you know, there's a million things that could happen. So set healthy boundaries to where you're not cushioning their bottom, and you're also not contributing to the issue. And those are hard boundaries to set. Yeah, it sounds like it. You said cushioning their bottom. I don't think all of our listeners would understand what you're talking about. Would you explain what you mean by that? So for me, I wanted to quit using drugs long before I quit. And many of us refer to hitting rock bottom, meaning each person's bottom could be different, but it's at the point where you're willing to go through whatever it takes to change instead of remain the same. Hmm. And so for me, it was like losing my kid, going to jail. You know, I wanted to be a different person when I walked out of that jail than I was when I walked in. And I was willing to do whatever it takes. I was willing to stay clean even when they said I wouldn't get my kid back. I was willing to take a job I really didn't want. I was willing. And so the person has to hit a hard enough bottom to be willing to experience the pain of withdrawal, to be willing to experience the distrust that they've created, and to be willing to form a new lifestyle of friends, places. You know, they say stay away from Mm. places, playgrounds, and playmates. And so we have to be willing to do a complete life change. And that's painful. Mm. And you think these people are your friends that you've been using with. I have nothing in common with someone I used to use drugs with. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We have nothing to talk about. There's no common interests. There's nothing. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I thought, and here's a situation, when they told me I needed to stay away from my 
people that I used with and playgrounds. Well, my people that I used with, some were my family. So I understand you don't want me going to the dope man's house, but what about my mom? Yeah, the first person who introduced drugs to you. Yeah, I don't want to stay away with my mom. I love my mom. She shouldn't count. Mm. She did count. If I wanted to stay clean, I had to be willing to love her from a distance during my my early recovery because I needed to stay clean and I couldn't if I went around her. The first thing I'd say was, let's, let's fire up a joint. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you asked that question, Marissa, because that's super profound, cushioning the bottom. And that's I think that's a really important thing for all of us to know is are we people who are really struggling, what does it look like to have their bottom cushioned? And are we contributing to that maybe more than we should? So if there's a survivor listening who is currently in the process of getting their children back, what would you have to say to them? Keep doing what you're supposed to do. And it's not in my timing. My timing obviously was not very good. (laughs) You know, there's there's a, a bigger purpose in all of it. When the time is right, when I'm ready, when my child's ready, because we're both going through a transformation while we're separate. Mm. And when the timing is right, it'll happen. If you get yourself in position and you stand and you stay in position, meaning whatever it is that you're required to do with DCS, if you do those things and you stand and you wait, don't get discouraged because there will be attacks against your character. There will be naysayers that don't believe you can do it. There will be all kinds of attacks. But if it doesn't apply, let it fly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, Mm -hmm. you know what your goal is. Stay focused and do what you got to do. The day will come that they can no longer hold my past against me, that they must look at who I am today. The day will come. That's beautiful. Trish, thank you so much for this. This has been an absolute joy. And getting to hear any survivor story is just so important in this work. And so I'm so grateful you've contributed your voice today. This is wonderful. It's my honor. Thank you. If our conversation with Trish, along with the last episode about foster care, has you wanting to get involved in the lives of fostered youth, then we want to be sure you know about the organization My Bag, My Story. You might be disheartened to learn, as I was, that a large majority of fostered youth carry their belongings in plastic bags or trash bags, and My Bag, My Story works to change this. You can help give foster children dignity by purchasing a bag or backpack from My Bag, My Story, and they'll donate a backpack or duffel bag to a foster child. It's a really great one-for-one system, and they have, honestly, adorable bags and accessory bags and duffel bags, and it has direct impact on the lives of foster children. And if you buy a bag and let them know you heard about it through In Slavery Tennessee, they'll donate to one of our minor clients that's in DCS custody. You can find out more and look at their inventory at mybagmystory.com. In Slavery Tennessee thanks the Jones Legacy Group for their continued support of someone like me. Our production staff is Gregory Byerline, Stacy Elliott, and Marissa Brunell. Claire Bidigary Curtis is our engineer, 
and original music is by Zach and Maggie White. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>